So good to be with you guys this morning. You're new or visiting. My name is Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. We're continuing on in the book of Matthew, um, in the gospel of Matthew. And one of the unique aspects about the gospel of Matthew that distinguishes it from other gospel accounts is that it's written primarily with the Jewish audience in mind. And just so you know, it's, it's a vital exercise. Whenever you're trying to understand or interpret what the Bible means, you have to ask the question, well, who was this originally written to? And the answer to this question is the reason why we have four dis, uh, different gospel accounts. While, while all the gospel writers agree on who Jesus is and what he came to do, all of them are giving different vantage points and different emphasis to different parts of Jesus' life and his ministry because they're writing to a different audience. So the Gospel of Mark, for instance, we preached through it a couple years ago. It's written primarily with a non-Jewish audience in mind. And so what you see in each account is this doesn't change who Jesus is. Actually, he's remarkably the same in every account. But it does explain why the accounts aren't exactly identical. And so for Matthew's audience, people he's speaking to, people he's writing to, they have specific questions in mind. And for the Jewish people, for them to hear about this Christ, their main question at the beginning of this book is, is he truly the Messiah? Like, is he truly the Christ? Because to them, that's massively important. To them, they're asking the question, does he really fit, this Jesus, does he really fit all of the criteria, all of the prophecies, all of the promises that God had already made to them about the promised Messiah? They're asking questions like, is he truly in the line of David? Because they're very important to them. Because for them, if he's not in the line of David, then this whole thing is a non-starter. Right? You've had those conversations before with people. If you can't answer me this question, I can never believe in Jesus. For them, it's if he's not of the line of David, then there's no way he is the Messiah. Now, this concern is not nearly as strong for us in this room. For the most part, most of us don't have the same background as the people who are receiving this book. I mean, I've yet to meet anybody in our church, in our city for that matter, who has ever come to me and said, Tyler, I can never believe in Jesus if you can't prove to me that he's the son of David. I've never gotten that rebuttal. I've never had anyone in this church go, if you think I'm gonna believe in some guy from the tribe of Zebulun, you're out of your mind, right? I would never believe that. You're like, what's a Zebulun? Like, you don't even know what that is. Right? That's not the question right now. If your life and your culture is steeped in the Old Testament, then that's your question. But all of us come to the Bible with different questions in mind, and sometimes the writer is not trying to answer the question that you have. He's not trying to. Like, so we come to the Bible with questions like, why do bad things happen? Or how do I deal with my shame? Or what job should I take? Or how do I find the one? Or how do I get a date? Or what, whatever, how do I raise good kids? We come to the Bible with certain questions that the writer, the Bible answers them, but not every text is trying to answer your specific question. So what Matthew's going to do again today, he's going to hit again the birth of Jesus. It's going to feel a little redundant to us because we're not asking the same questions. But the Bible is this great counselor that gives you the questions you should ask. Have you ever been to a counselor before? They're really great about going. You're like, hey, why does this happen? They go, have you ever thought why you get so angry? You're like, no, I haven't, but I should, right? Like, they want to take you deeper. And what God is doing is he's showing you, here's the questions you should be asking, because if he truly is the Messiah, 
and all the promises of God actually are fulfilled in him, then there's nobody who's more important in your life. Then there's nobody who's more prominent in history. And so again, today, Matthew's gonna say, listen again, his birth, it fits all of the criteria needed for him to be the Messiah. And from this story, we're gonna see one main thing. One main thing for you to take home today. We're gonna see that there are several ways to reject Jesus. Several ways to reject him but only one way to truly receive him as king. Several ways to reject him, one way to receive him. Let's read Matthew 2, 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to, came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So just like last week in the virgin birth, there's another famous story about the birth of Jesus. You've probably heard of the three wise men. We don't know if there were three, but that's kind of the traditional telling of the story. And again, we have some miraculous things going on. So let me give you a couple of just contextual things. So first, the two main characters in this story, Herod the king and the wise men, right? They're the ones that drive this plot forward. So Herod was the king that the Romans appointed over the land of Palestine. That's where, the, that's where Israel lived. So he oversees all the Jewish people, and the wise men, some of your translations may say magi, we don't know exactly where they were from, but they were from the east. Some people think Babylon, modern-day Iraq, but these were thinkers, these were leaders, these were astrologers. They were the wealthy, they were the elite of that society. They would interpret dreams, and they were familiar with the mystical and spiritual world. And so they, in their astrology, they see a star, they interpret it as Oh, that is the birth of the king of the Jews, so they head that way. And they show up to Jerusalem, the greatest city of the Jewish people, and they show up looking for their king. And I, I would assume, the way they ask the question, I would assume they're like, hey guys, where's your king? They're like, what king? They don't know what he's talking about. And so Herod goes and gets the religious leaders and their scholars, he says, hey, guys, where's the king supposed to be born? Is it Jerusalem? No, it's in Bethlehem. And so they, Herod says, okay, you guys go to Bethlehem. We'll find out he doesn't want to worship this king. He wants to kill this king. You guys go to Bethlehem. Tell me when you find him. And this star, the one that they had seen, leads them to the very place where Jesus is. And this is the point of the story. It says this, verse 9. 
It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. A star moves in the sky to rest over the house where Jesus was. Now, there's a lot of different explanations as to what is going on here. Right? Modern day astronomers have gone back and looked at, was there any cosmic event back in that day and age, back at that point in time, that could possibly explain what's going on? So there's, there's a couple different theories. There's a theory that there actually was a supernova at that point in time. Maybe that's what they saw. Maybe it was a planet in the night sky. Maybe it was a comet. And for all the different merits of these theories, at the end of the day, we don't know what happened. We don't know how this happened. And let me just say this. If you're a person in here and you hear the idea of a star moving over the house where Jesus is, and something in you says, man, there's no way. Like if you're here and you're a skeptic, or you're someone who's wired that way, and you hear that and you go, there is no way that's possible. How could a star move like that? And you begin to say, okay, I'm gonna research every possible explanation, and if it doesn't seem plausible to me, then there's no way I can really believe the Bible is true. And a lot of us, here's the truth, I get it. I totally understand that. All of us have things we read in the Bible and we kind of, we get hung up on. Like maybe for you, you're like, star moving, no problem for me. I'm a person of faith. Good for you. But for others of us, we read it and we're like, struggling to understand that. Let me just say, don't let that wrestling in your mind of how does that happen get in the way of the point of the story. And the rest of the Bible, for that matter, don't let these miraculous things get in the way of you understanding the point of what God is trying to communicate. Because that's a big deal. I totally understand that. But the truth is, the more incredible claim is not that a star moved, is that God is dwelling fully in a baby boy in that house. That's the more incredible claim. Like, if if God could dwell fully in a baby boy in that house that they're looking for, then surely it's not a leap to believe that God is in control of all things and he can even move stars in any way that he likes. Because in the story, what may be front page news for us as Westerners who go, wait, how does the star work? Matthew just assumes it. He just goes, yeah, the star moved. Everyone's like, okay, the star moved. Like, no one even questions it. That's just part of what they're trying to communicate to us because it's not the main point of the story. The point of it is God is moving the heavens to show these wise men where his son is. So here's the main thing you're going to see. Herod and the religious leaders, they're going to show you in a way for you to assess yourself. They're going to show you how to reject Jesus. They're going to show you how do you reject him. And the wise men are going to show you how do you receive him. See, Herod rejects Jesus because he's a threat. Like When Herod sees Jesus, he sees a threat. But when the religious leaders see Jesus, they reject him because he's not more compelling than what they already have. There's two ways to reject him. Look at verse three, we'll look at Herod first. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod, he hears about a king and he's immediately threatened by him. Why? The text is really explicit. He's Herod the king. Well, another king was just born, and he knows, what does that mean? There can only be one of us. Only one of us can rule over this people, and so he feels threatened. Because when Jesus enters into your world, when he enters into your life, he enters as a king, and he doesn't tolerate any rivals. 
He enters as a king and everything is subject to his word. There's nothing off the table for him. And so Herod loves power. Herod enjoys power. It pleases him. And he sees what I want will be taken away if Jesus is born. If this truly is a king, then what I have will no longer be able to coexist with him. And he rejects Jesus. You can see next week, we look at how he tries to kill him. And all of us in this room are tempted to reject Jesus when his word says, you can't have something that you want. Every single one of us. We're tempted to reject him when his word says, you can't have something that you want. See, whether or not we enjoy something is not the standard by which we measure its goodness in the kingdom of God. It's really important you understand that. Whether or not you enjoy something is not the standard by which we measure if that thing is good in the kingdom of God. We measure something's goodness and its virtue by the word and the wisdom of the king. That's how we measure it. See, there are certain values that have no place with him. There are certain realities that cannot coexist with him. Now, I'm not saying we'll never fail him. That's not what I'm saying. But to be around the king, you have to admit that that he's right when he says you're wrong. That he's right when he says you're wrong. He sets the standard. He's the king. So, for example, Jesus says this about love of money. He takes a reality and he contrasts it with himself. We'll study this more in detail in the Sermon on the Mount, but listen to what Jesus says. He says, you cannot serve God and money. You can't do both. He takes something and says, there's no gray area here. There's plenty of gray areas in life, church. But there are certain realities where there's no gray. He says you can't have both. So he says, if you want to love money and you want to make that your hope and your treasure and you want to hoard it for yourself and not listen to me about it, that's fine. You can have it, but you won't have me, he says. You can't have both. I could give you example after example in the scriptures of things that Jesus says, this opposes me. And this is why Jesus can be threatening to us because his authority threatens the things we want the most. And plenty of people have rejected him on these grounds. Plenty of people. Maybe you're in this room and you're struggling right now. You're wanting to reject what he says about your sexuality, or your money, or your dreams, or your ambitions, or your bitterness. I can, I can name all sorts of things. Where his word is really clear what you're supposed to do, and what the values are, and something in you is saying, I don't want to do that. I know for some of you, You've already tried this, and you left church for a long time. You left the faith for a long time, and you're now kind of dipping your toe back in. I'm really glad that you're here. And you've come back because, and you can tell the story to the rest of our church who's struggling maybe to want to leave. You can tell them, hey, I know you think there's going to be all this life and joy without any of the so-called restrictions of being a Christian, but then you find out the hard truth that all, any time Jesus gives you restrictions, it's for your joy. It's for your protection. That the commands and restrictions of God, when he says, no, you can't have me and have that, he's not trying to punish you, he's trying to protect you. That his word is is like when you go to the zoo and it says, don't jump in the lion's pit. That's not a mean thing to say. You're like, how dare they tell me what I can and cannot do at a lion's pit? If I want to jump in, that's my right, right? 
No, there's no malintent in that. It's saying, no, no, trust me, the zoo's better over here. That's how this works. That's what God's word is like. He's saying, no, no, I'm not trying to keep you from joy. I'm saying there's more life here. Jesus is a king, and when he says, this is no life, there's no life in this, he's not negotiating with you. He's giving you an edict. And so often we don't trust him. So that's one way to reject Jesus, to say, I see what you say, I hear what you say, and I don't want anything to do with it. Now, it's fairly obvious when we do that, and all of us in this room are tempted to do that, but the fact that you're here probably means that you're wrestling with that. At least, at bare minimum, you're, you're not going full-fledged that way. At bare minimum, you at least want to be around Jesus some form in some fashion, and so I'm glad that that's true. Now, the other way of rejecting Jesus is much more of a temptation for those in the church. The other way of rejecting Jesus is much more of a temptation for us. See, the much more subtle way is by simply not finding him all that interesting or compelling. That's the more subtle way for us to reject him. To be content knowing things about him, but never truly wanting to make him the goal of your life. Fine with knowledge, but I don't really care to make him a priority. That's our temptation. I mean, that's exactly what the religious leaders and scholars did. Look at verses four through six. So Herod, assembling and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They're quoting Micah 5.2 here. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So all the, all the leaders and the scholars in Jerusalem, the city of God, they all agree, hey, it's Bethlehem. It's not Jerusalem, it's Bethlehem. That's the city where King David was born, and this is what the prophet prophesied. So they give Herod his answer. Here's your answer, Herod. And you don't hear anything else about them. You don't hear anything else about them. They don't follow up to see why he's asking. They don't go and talk to the Magi themselves. They don't even say, hey, let me go with you and check this thing out with you to see if the king really is here. Because listen, potentially, potentially the king that they had been waiting for, supposedly, the one who would save them from all of their oppressors, the one who would put the world back right again. There, he was potentially here, just a couple of miles that way. And they had scoured the scriptures. They had inquired of the Bible. They had read it, and they figured out exactly where he would be, and yet, and yet they weren't interested in actually meeting him. They were content knowing information about the Bible, but they didn't want to actually proactively go meet him. Why? Why? Why do they just fade in the background here? Well, these are vocational religious leaders. So it's not like they had a, another job that busied them up and they couldn't quite get there. They are freed up for just this sort of thing. So why don't they do anything? I really doubt that after they gave Herod his answer, I really doubt that there was anything malicious about them going home. Like sometimes we can make this caricature of sin where it's like, sin is always this like, I'm gonna go home and gamble. Like, like, like there's something you wanna go do, right? I'm gonna go do this really seedy enterprise thing. I doubt that's why, what was going on. They were doing a job, they read the Bible, 
They knew the answer was. They gave it to him, and they went back to their life. They didn't think anything of it. Why? Because a lot like us, their life was pretty good. Their life was pretty good. And they probably didn't want to do anything too drastic, right? They probably liked their life. It's not a bad thing to say that. They probably liked their life. But listen, if you enjoy your life and you don't really want anything major to change, do you really want the Messiah to show up? Right? If you enjoy your life, and sure, not everything is perfect. You love for a couple minor changes, maybe you lose a couple LBs, a couple of changes would be nice. But you don't want anything drastic, do you? Well, then would you really want the prophesied Messiah who's going to turn the world upside down? Would you really want him to come? No, because your life's pretty good. This is the reason why the poor, both in possessions and in spirit, were the ones who sought out Jesus and were most likely to be drawn to him. It was the poor in possessions and in spirit because they were very aware of their need. They were very aware of their emptiness. They were very aware of their guilt and their despair. They knew, no, no, my life is not good. It's not just a little bit broken, it's fundamentally broken. I need help, I need a king. Do you know the ones who were slower to go out to Jesus, the ones who honestly never went out to Jesus were the ones who didn't feel all that needy. Were the ones who didn't feel that needy. It's always been the well-to-do, the put-together, the self-reliant, the self-confident. They don't go looking for a king. They're good. Why would you need one? Now, they read their Bibles, they attend services, they try to be nice. They don't have any hard feelings towards God. They're not mad at Christianity. They're even part of a church. But nothing in them is longing for God. Maybe nothing in you is desperate for him, is fervent for him. So we'll do all the religious activities required of us. But anything that may feel a little bit too drastic, anything that will require more than what everyone else is doing, we find ourselves explaining away, well, I don't really have to do that, so why do it? Life is pretty good. See, it's not just the overt sins, the overt sins that we're not supposed to do that keep us from God. Oftentimes, oftentimes it is God's great gifts to us that tempt us the most to love them more than God himself. It's often his gifts to you, God's gifts to you, that tempt you the most to not love God uniquely and supremely. I was thinking this week, one of the unique aspects, one of the unique aspects of a gift from God is it doesn't tend to reveal to you your desperate need for God. Typically, Typically, a great gift from God does not tend to reveal to you your neediness for God. What gifts tend to produce, rightly, is thanksgiving and gratitude, right? A great gift from God tends to produce and should produce great gratitude and thankfulness, but rarely do the best gifts cause us to repent and cause us to confess and cause us to cry out to God for help. 
So a great gift from God that all of us can relate to is incredible food, right? We all live in Austin. There's great food everywhere. And all of us in this room, you have those dishes in your life that just blow you away. There's those restaurants you go to that you can't wait to get to. You Instagram, the filter is hungry, and you can't wait to go, right? And for some of you, maybe that vibe is more like an uchi. For others of you, maybe the vibe is more like an enchilada's imas, which I heard about this week. I can't wait to try, okay? But when we eat something we love, we can't help but talk about it and praise about it. And all of us have those different ways of expressing delight in food. So, like, I'm the guy, maybe we've never had dinner together, I'm the very demonstrative guy. I'm the guy who squeezes your arm like, oh, my gosh, you got to try this. Everyone, look, like, that's just who I am. Now, Halim, you know, guys know Pastor Halim, a little more stoic of a guy. So when we eat, normally he just eats and says nothing. That's what normally he does, okay? And if he really likes something, he'll go, it's really good. You're like, oh, that must be amazing. Like if, if Halim is nodding his head, it must be amazing. He said two words, best dish in the world. Like that's, that's the way that works. So all of us have the different ways we express praise when you eat a meal with friends, with family, and you cannot believe how good it was. But none of us, none of us have had a genuinely amazing meal. That is a gift from God, by the way. It's a gift. None of us have had an amazing meal and got done and genuinely thought, walking out of the restaurant going, I need a king. That would be weird, probably, right? Like, how was your meal? I don't know, I need a king. What? Like, what kind of restaurant did you go to? Um, None of us walk out and think, I need to repent of sin. None of us feel desperate in that moment. We all feel content, happy, and honestly, we should praise God for that. Like, I'm not saying you you can't enjoy good things. You should enjoy good things. But it doesn't tend to produce in us that desperation required to see our need for God. You see a great house, a great apartment, with a great job, and a great salary, with great fun, with great kids, and great friends in a great city and great food. All those things, if rightly enjoyed, should produce praise and thanksgiving and gratitude to God. But if that's your only experience, you're going to struggle to see your need for him through them. You're going to struggle to see it. This is why It's hard for the rich, both in possessions and in spirit, to enter the kingdom of God. This is why. Affluence, having wealth, having possessions, listen, listen, it doesn't mean you're more sinful or more wicked than anybody else. It's very easy to be portrayed that way and be spoken to that way. That's not true. You're not more wicked or more sinful than anybody else because you have possessions, because all of us in this room, for the most part, are relative to the world, are very wealthy people. It just means you have more distractions and more obstacles in your way. That's what it means. It means you have more things to insulate you from feeling your need for God. It means you have more comforts. It means you have more freedoms to escape the pains that you feel. It means you have more comforts to numb yourself to these greater reality. That's all that it means. But that's why it's hard, because great gifts can produce thankfulness. They don't tend to produce repentance and confession. This is why Christians 
should always be this strange group of people who limit ourselves even when we don't have to. For so many of us, the idea of limiting ourselves always feels awful and evil, but yet to truly want to follow Jesus with all that you are, the question is not, is this thing I want to do good or bad? That's the wrong question. Is Does this thing help me have a deeper sense of who God is? So Christians will limit themselves in ways the culture could never understand. So we'll limit how much television we watch, not because it's bad, but because it tends to numb us to reality. Or we'll limit how much money we spend on something. Or we don't go on the nicest vacation we could possibly go on. Or we give away more than other people can understand. Christians will always limit themselves in ways that's not required. Not because God's gifts can't be enjoyed. They should be enjoyed. But we will limit ourselves to say, but they just tend to desensitize me to the things of God. You should know, Christian, you should know that about yourself. You should know, here are neutral things in the world that if I consume too much of them, they just tend to numb me. If you don't know what that is, you need to figure that out. There's things that I'll partake in that aren't bad, that are good things. Entertainment that I'll partake in, there's nothing bad about it. But if I take in too much of it, I've just found my heart has a hard time when I read the Bible being excited. Because we know our tendency is to love creation more than the creator. And so I want to put myself in rhythms and circumstances and cons- things that I do consume, I want them to be things that help me have greater attention and greater affection and greater faith in this king. That's why we do it. That's another way to reject him. It's very subtle. And you can think you're fine the whole way through. And what this whole text is showing is Jerusalem, the city that should be receiving Jesus the most, is the one that's most quick to get away from him in overt and in subtle ways. Herod rejects Jesus because he's a threat. The religious leaders and scholars reject Jesus because he's unimportant to them. But the wise men, the wise men show us how to receive him as king. Look at verses 10 through 11. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's four things about worship, and we're done. They received Jesus with joy, submission, their best gifts, and by faith. So when they see the star move, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's not ordinary joy. This is not run-of-the-mill joy. This is great happiness and delight. You can know you have seen Jesus clearly if something in your heart begins to burst with how you feel. If you've never felt that, I don't think you've ever seen him clearly. Because when you see him for who he is, there's something about him that gives you this joy and you finally realize, oh, that's what I wanted all my relationships to be, what he is. Oh, that's the love I was made for. Oh, that's the forgiveness. That's the comfort. That's the person I was wanting. And there's a joy that you get from him you can't get anywhere else. That's the unique experience of a Christian. They had joy. Then they went into his house and they submitted themselves to him. I mean, these are thinkers in their own land who have great wealth and prestige. They're intellectuals. And they postured themselves in such a way to publicly communicate that their lives were willingly subjected to him and him alone. If you've seen Jesus clearly, following him is not always a burden. 
Like if, if his commands at the end of the day just feel like begrudging obedience and it kind of feels like he's always nagging you, you may not have seen him clearly. Because there's something about when you know him for who he actually is that you know even when his commands may be difficult, you know that's where life is. I know that's where life is. And we submit ourselves to him. Third, they gave him their best gifts. Now some of you may be thinking, I, don't, I would never want some myrrh in my life, that's okay, right? But all these gifts, just so you know, they are very expensive and very rare in that day. So they weren't giving him, what, they're, what he's saying is, they weren't giving him like a standard baby shower gift. They didn't run by Target and buy a $10 gift card somewhere. Like they, they, they were giving him the very best possible gifts they could ever give. Listen, if you've seen Jesus clearly, you don't give him the parts of your life that you don't really care about anyway. It's really easy to do. Oh, I'm, I wasn't going to do anything on Sunday morning anyway. I guess I'll go to church. I, well, that extra disposable income, yeah, I would have given that to some charity, so why not the church? It's really easy to gift him the places of your life that, honestly, aren't that important to you anyway. What they're doing is they're saying, Jesus, here's what's most precious. Here's what's most valuable to me. Here's what's most dear to me. I'm putting it at your feet. And I'm saying it's yours. When you perceive the worth of Jesus, it'll cause you to go, no, what's most dear to me? Is it my job? Is it my intellect? Is it my skill? Is it my discipline? Is it my kids? Is it my husband? Is it my wife? Is it, are it my, what, are my dreams? What is it? Are my relationships? And I'm going to see him and go, I'm putting them at your feet because you know what to do with them. You are better than all of those things. To see Jesus clearly is not to give him the dregs of your life. It's to give him the heart of it. This is yours. Whatever you call me to do. And lastly, they did all of this in faith. They did all this in faith that this child truly was a king worthy of such response. And I say faith not because it's clearly in the text. It's implied in the text. It's implied because they acted this way, remember, to a child. They're doing this to a child. And this is a baby that nobody knew about. He has no kingdom yet. There's nothing about him that would say, clearly, that's the son of God. It's just a star over the house that told them where to go. And I don't know about you, but the idea of worshiping a baby seems a little crazy to me. I've oohed and awed over a baby before, but I've never walked into a baby shower and gone, oh, praise your name, baby. I've never done that before. This child can barely hold his head up. How's he going to hold me up? Right? This child can barely take care, can't take care of himself. And yet I'm saying, all in. Everything I have is yours. See, they saw the child with eyes of faith. They saw the child with eyes of faith. See, with eyes of flesh, what is it? Just a child? The epitome of human weakness. But by faith, they saw this is the king. God has literally moved the heavens for us to meet him. They saw Jesus in his weakness. And by faith, they saw a king. That's how you have to receive him. You have to receive him by faith. You have to see Jesus in his most vulnerable, most weak state and see, that's my ruler, that's my leader, that's my king. See, not just as a child, but when Jesus would be even weaker and more vulnerable as he died on the cross. 
See, by faith, we see the cross not as a sign of his failure or powerlessness. We see the cross and we see that's a king conquering all of our enemies. We see weakness and we perceive his strength. The eyes of flesh will simply perceive Jesus' death as another end of a really good religious teacher, has some good things that we should consider. But by faith, the church, we see the fulfillment of the salvation of God. We see all of his promises coming to fruition. We see God's gonna change the world through this person. That's what we see. We see the cross as the pinnacle of his love. That of all the ways he could have loved us, this is the pinnacle of it. We see the cross, this is the one God is working everything through. We see the cross and we see this is breaking down barriers, every barrier between us and God and us and one another. In the home where Jesus resides, do you know what you see? You see people who have nothing in common, nothing to link them in a fleshly sense with common ground. See, when he's born, you're seeing a foreshadowing of what's to come. You're seeing people from different lands, different ethnicities, and different social classes gathered around the same king. What do you see the Magi? You see the intellectual elite and powerful, the thinkers of their day, the philosophers of their day, and they come and they marvel. There's a place for them. And in Luke's account of the gospel, we see that there were shepherds that were there at some point. Poor Jewish shepherds that nobody cared about. They're next to the Magi. You have newlywed teenagers, and all of them gather around the king. Jesus is able to carry such weight that he can bring the CEO of Oracle and the teacher at Pickle Elementary and the construction worker in Pflugerville and the working class family in Dove Springs, and the UT student and professor, and the newlyweds off South Lamar, and the immigrant from Iran, and anyone else you can possibly think of, and say, oh, there's a place for you here. There's something here for us to gather around. I know nothing else about us is in common, but this king has such weight and such value, we can all say, we see the same thing. Because the glory of Jesus is by faith from every vantage point in every culture, you can see the same thing, that he's marveling and he's showing off his strength and weakness, that he's showing off his character and suffering, he's showing off his love and loss, that by faith we together can see and joy and submission and give him our best gifts and say, this truly is the treasure of treasures. This truly is the joy of joys. This truly is the king of kings. He's arrived, and he's breaking down every barrier, and he's making no bones about it that he's here to bring this new kingdom that everyone can have a place because he's the only one who's worthy of your entire life and all of your worship. Let's pray together. Father, for every single one of us, give us eyes to see the glory of who Jesus is. God, for every single one of us, show us the areas where we have begun to subtly undermine you. God, show us the areas where we're bored. Show us the areas where we're giving up. Show us the areas we don't truly believe your promises. 
And help us see your glory in the midst of all of them. Help us see that you are the most unique one among us. Help us see that there's nobody like you. God, for those in this room who, God, we feel like we're this close to leaving. This close because we can't endure another bit of suffering. We can't fail another time. Hold us up. Remind us there's no life out there. It's a lie. And God, for so many of us where we find ourselves unimpressed, uninspired, uncompelled by you, we just want to say, God, it's true. We just want to own up and say, God, we don't always love you the way that we should, but God, give us eyes to see your greatness. Help us see your cross as the pinnacle of love and the pinnacle of your promise, saying you will do whatever it takes for us to know you're near, for us to know you save, for us to know you're strong. Save this church, God, from apathy, because it means we haven't seen you clearly. God, help us sing like people who get there's none like you. Sing like people who believe we're forgiven, who live like people where nothing's off limits. Everything we have is yours because we've seen truly by faith how great you are. You're the king, Jesus. We follow you. Give us eyes to see. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand.